Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Nova Scotia has a long and tumultuous racial history that included for many decades one of the largest black populations in all of what would become Canada. Long before migration to central Canada raised the numbers of Afro-Caribbean peoples living in modern-day Toronto, the nexus of black migration into British North America and later Canada was focused around Canada's East Coast province. But like most of the history of this country, the immigration of people of color was met with fierce resistance and difficult and challenging times ensued for those attempting to make a life in a country that saw itself as a white colony and later a white nation. Now, out of these waves of black immigration into Canada emerged the community of Africville, a small black community north of Halifax, a community that struggled to thrive while being ignored rejected, and eventually destroyed by the city of Halifax. The story of Africville is the story of the black experience in Canada and is a reminder of the enduring struggle that so many had to face in trying to make a better life in a land that claimed to be open to people of all races and colors, but where the reality was much different. This is Season 7, Episode 3, Africville. Today, I am going to recommend two books. The first is a children's book. This book is titled Africville. It is written by Shante Grant and illustrated by Ava Campbell. This is an award-winning children's book about a young girl who visits the site of Africville and begins to wonder what the community was like back when it existed. The second book is titled A Love Letter to Africville by Amanda Carvery Taylor. 
This book is a collection of personal stories and photos from former residents and is an intimate look at the community through the eyes of those who lived there. Okay, so to understand the history of Africville, we need to understand the history of black immigration into Nova Scotia first. Now, the first blacks to arrive in Nova Scotia came as slaves. But because of the rocky soil and harsh climate, plantation slavery like that seen in what would become the United States, the southern United States in particular, never really took off on any large scale. Yet, slavery was certainly practiced. In the late 17th century, when Nova Scotia was still the French colony of Acadia, King Louis XIV officially sanctioned the importation of Africans and Afro-Caribbeans into Canada for the purpose of slave labor. Yet, only a small number of slaves ever actually arrived. Now, under British rule, who had officially wrestled control of Nova Scotia away from the French in 1713, the importation of slaves increased. You see, one of the main concerns of the British was to try to increase the population of Protestant English-speaking people. This was in order to balance out the presence of so many French-speaking Catholic Acadians who were already living in Nova Scotia. One of the primary ways the government sought to increase this specific population was to offer settlement opportunities to those living along the eastern seaboard of British North America, especially in what would become the 13 colonies of the United States. Part of promoting settlement in Nova Scotia was encouraging these New England settlers to bring their slaves. Now, after the British expelled the Acadians from Nova Scotia in the mid-18th century, some of the most fertile land was suddenly opened up to settlement for these New England planters, as they were called. And thus, arriving with these New England planters came their slaves. It's estimated that about 500 black slaves arrived in Nova Scotia this way, and by the end of the century, this number had increased to about 1,200 to 1,500. Now, in the aftermath of the American Revolution, which ended in 1783, roughly 3,500 free blacks migrated into Nova Scotia after serving the British during the war in return for their freedom. Yet, life was tough for these newly arrived loyalists, as they were often forced to settle in segregated areas outside of towns and were often given some of the poorest quality land. As well, those that did make a go of cultivating what they received often had to endure long legal battles to gain official title to their land. For instance, newly arrived white loyalists would often receive title within about three years. Yet, it sometimes took a decade or even two decades for a black loyalist to receive his title. At the same time, there was significant resistance within the colony to black settlement. White workers felt that 
black workers threatened their ability to find jobs, and even colonial government officials expressed resistance to this migratory pattern. In fact, one said, and I quote, Africans were a liability perilous to the immigration of decent white laborers and servants. Tension was so severe, in fact, that a number of race riots and violence against blacks occurred during the last decades of the 18th century. Now, because of the combination of poor land, a hostile white population, and an indifferent, if not hostile, colonial government, 1,200 black Nova Scotians seized on an opportunity to emigrate to Sierra Leone in 1791. The loss of these 1,200 people constituted about a 4% decline in the colony's population. Not four years later, 550 Maroons, that is, black Jamaicans freed or recently escaped from slavery, settled on much of the land vacated by the Sierra Leone departures. They too, however, struggled with a hostile population, harsh climate, and poor soil conditions. One of the differences, or one of the most interesting features, I would say, of this population, though, is that the Maroons were much more open and public in their resistance to Nova Scotia's hostile white colonial government. And they embraced a strategy of non-cooperation, which frustrated the white elites. In 1800, in response to this non-cooperation, the government forcibly shipped most of these Maroons to Sierra Leone. In 1815, this now twice vacated land was given to black loyalists who fought for the British during the War of 1812. These new immigrants and their descendants were the ones to officially found Africville, a collection of properties on the shore of the Bedford Basin in what is now northern Halifax. By the mid-19th century, this community had settled. Many of its residents fished, kept livestock, took wage labor within Halifax's stevedores, stone masons, later truck drivers and seamen, while the women often took domestic work within white households. By the end of the 19th century, Africville included a Baptist church, which was the spiritual center of the community. It included a school, a post office, a baseball field, and several small businesses. A vibrant, small community had now taken shape. Folks, before we continue, I just want to take a second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon, and both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate five bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. Now, we survive exclusively on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. And don't forget, on our Facebook page, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or any of your podcast apps, you can always leave us a rating and a comment. 
We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. And thank you to all who have donated. We could not keep doing this without you. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. The city of Halifax began to expand rapidly in the second half of the 19th century, and more and more of that urban sprawl began to encroach upon Africville. Railway lines were built through the community in 1853 by the Nova Scotia Railway Company. That same decade, a prison was built on the hill overlooking the community, and in fact, Halifax's night soil disposal pit was placed on Africville's eastern edge. For those who are not aware, night soil by definition of the Oxford Dictionary is human excrement collected at night from buckets, cesspools, and outhouses, which is sometimes used as manure. By the end of the 19th century, Africville had become surrounded by various industries including an oil pan storage facility, a bone mill, a cotton factory, two slaughterhouses, a tar factory, a coal handling facility, an infectious disease hospital, and a trachoma hospital. The waste from much of these was dumped directly into the Africville water and soil. By the beginning of the 20th century, things began to look bad, and residents repeatedly asked the city of Halifax for help in cleaning up their community. Building permits, however, were frequently denied. Requests for water and sewage lines were ignored or rejected. The city refused to provide Africville with garbage collection, police services, and even fire protection. With the city refusing to improve the infrastructure, while a clear industrial creep expanded onto Africville land, the community became more and more run down, and in fact, it became outright dangerous to live in. The water and soil were becoming contaminated, buildings were becoming decrepit, fire hazards were aplenty, and by the 1940s, the city of Halifax began plans to expropriate the land for total industrial use, citing Africville as a slum, not, of course, recognizing its own role in creating said slum. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, by the 1960s, an extremely complicated process of relocation of its now 400 residents was initiated. In 1961, a group known as the Halifax Human Rights Advisory Committee was formed to try and oversee compensation agreements struck between Africville residents and the city of Halifax. The core leadership of this group consisted of about 10 people, three Africville residents, 
and seven others, three who were black and four who were white. One of these leaders included Charles Coleman. He was the American-born minister at the Africville Seaview Baptist Church. As well, another key leader was W.P. Oliver, who had in fact founded the Nova Scotia Association for the Advancement of Colored People and, in 1945, was one of the men who had taken up the cause of Viola Desmond, known as Canada's Rosa Parks. Now, despite the formation of this committee, the negotiations with Africville residents were not uniform at all. In fact, there was no real central leadership representing the community at large, and city officials were forced to work with different families and individuals on a case-by-case basis. This negotiation part actually fell to the feet of one single man, a man named Peter McDonald. McDonald was a provincial social worker who was tasked with sorting out the compensation for residents of the community. Now, the major problem facing McDonald, besides no central leadership or representation of the community at large, was the confusion over who owned what. Many residents had no title to their land, or if they did, It was hidden within ancient records dating as far back as the late 18th century. Some of the land was still outright owned by the city, even though residents had lived on it for generations. And others couldn't tell MacDonald where their property lines began or ended. Thus, a confusing and time-consuming process began, whereby MacDonald had to conduct research in archives, while also engaging in long negotiations with residents to ascertain who owned what and where. Africville itself was not designed in any grid pattern, so the community's layout was chaotic in appearance, and this further, of course, complicated McDonald's efforts in deciphering land ownership. In many cases, he simply had to rely on local knowledge. What did residents believe their property and their neighbors' property boundaries to be. McDonald's efforts were also hindered by the fact that there was no consensus amongst Africville residents on the relocation efforts. Some wanted to remain. Some wanted different forms of compensation, and others were strongly in favor of relocation. McDonald's efforts and the process of relocation are in fact highly controversial. According to some historians, his work was superficial at best, and most Africville residents resisted relocation. According to other historians, MacDonald was surprisingly rigorous in his efforts to clarify land tenure and secure fair market value for Africville residents, and more Africville residents than previously thought embraced the relocation process. This historical debate continues. Regardless, by the end of the 1960s, Africville's residents had been moved and the community had been raised. Though the story of Africville was forgotten by most Canadians, it was not forgotten by the former residents of the community. Commemoration events were held frequently, and in the 1980s, a park was constructed on the former site of the community. Now, to conclude this episode, I want to quote Lyndall Smith, 
Halifax City Councilor for District 8, which includes the former site of Africville. And Smith states, and I quote, The only reason that Africville is not here today is because of what the city did to the community. A lot of Canadians don't know the history around that. Some people know it was a black community, but don't know why it's no longer here. I think it's important to remember the terrible things that happened, the discrimination and displacement, but also the people of Africville had ownership and a sense of community, and that is something to celebrate. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.